bottles of red have been killed in the making of the Crude Street podcast. I could calculate that because it's no more than one half each week. So it's, I, I, any, so anyway. it's, what, it's like 340 bottles? Probably. Or 270 bottles or something? 270 bottles of... Mm, there yep. you go. Okay. And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Hugo Award-winning and very slightly alcoholic Coot Street Podcast! Well, first of, all, first of all, the alcoholic is a comment about me because it's early in the morning there and I know that you have too much good breeding to be drinking mimosas at nine in the morning or whatever it is. So, yes, okay, I do drink wine during the podcast. Fine. So, <laughs> well, I mean, okay, caffeinated here, even though... Okay. Honestly, for health reasons, less caffeinated than before. And I, when we have recorded in the evening, in your, you know, my evening, yes. not yours, um, I have occasionally had a glass of something during the recording. And I think even a couple of times when we've been face-to-face, should that ever happen again? Well, let's assume it will happen in Chicago this coming August or possibly in New Orleans this coming November or whenever it is. Before we um, die. Before we die, at least. But, I mean, look, uh, the, the big thing here, Gary, apart from having a, a earth-shattering heat wave, heat wave in Perth, where we've had five days in a row of over 40 degrees centigrade, is that they revised their decision to open our borders on February the 5th and decided ah. to leave them closed indefinitely until the, enough of the population has had a third vaccination. And I, I understand their reasoning for it, but it does mean that as of right now, Unless I'm willing to quarantine for two weeks, there is no prospect of getting out of town. What it tells me is that the really visionary writer uh, about the current situation, about your current situation, was not any of the pandemic pandemic novelists. It was not Station Eleven. It was not Jack London's The Scarlet Plague. It was Neville Shoots on the beach. You're sitting there alone in Australia. The rest of the world has been destroyed, and you're just waiting for it to work around to you. Kind of thing. I mean, I think before Omicron came along, I think they're all ready to like open up. And then it's like, oh, well, this is all too much. We won't open up just yet because we want to be safe from Omicron. Because mm-hmm. you know, I think we have like 92% vaccination rate of the 12 and over population. So we should sort of be okay. But then it's like, no, we've got to wait. And I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anti-waiting. It's just very frustrating. And I understand for some people, very, very difficult. There are families you can't get, to get back together. So it's, it's a difficult time. And you would think, logically, a great time for reading. Mm-hmm. Because, after all, 42 degrees days, when you get four 42-degree days in a row, it's a lot like a snow day, Gary. You don't want to go out. I am certain that's this. I mean, this is, to translate, it's something like 105 or 107 Fahrenheit, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's fair to say the daily maximum temperatures for you, you in North America, hello, have been between about 105 and 110. So it's like they suddenly moved my house into Death Valley or something. Mm-hmm. And, and we have lovely air conditioning, so we're okay. But it does mean you look outside and go, I know it looks nice and sunny, but everything's dying and I don't want to go there. As I say, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of these things where the, we were looking at the wrong science fiction. There's a whole collection of science fiction stories about parts of the world being cut off from other parts of the, by disease, by defense, by... Uh, Ed, Edgar Rice Burroughs even wrote one called Beyond 30 because people, as I recall, <laughs> people from England are trying to find whatever happened to North America centuries later. Um, and, and, and back in the 50s, I don't know if it was even popular there, 
uh, because Neville Shute was not an Australian novelist. But On the Beach was one of the two or three big <laughs> nuclear war novels of the yeah. 50s and 60s. Uh, it was. And, and actually I mean, a very good novel. Howard Waldrop was a big fan. Huge fan oh, really? of On the Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think for I've people who haven't, and, and somebody else who was an enormous fan was John Silbersack, uh, yeah. uh, as, as both a publisher and a, and an agent, uh, and as as well as Neville shoots other things. But one of the things that um, struck me as odd about his career is that he was one of the first first group of people, first group of mainstream writers who had a mainstream bestseller that was clearly a science fiction theme, and was a fairly well thought out science fiction theme. In other words. Yeah. It wasn't just oh, nuclear devastation. Um, it was actually a, a, a pretty solid novel about waiting for the end, which yeah. w- whenever, whenever a part of the world isolates itself like that, in that case, the argument was a very reasonable argument. In nuclear war, Australia would be the last place to get the fallout outside of Antarctica. I have to say, it is interesting to be in, an, in a, I guess, what, a political area, a state where mm. your borders are closed, and you feel confined because you can't travel, but it is still an area a third the size of the, size of the continental United States. It's only a so, third the size? No, 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 no. Western Australia. Oh, Western Australia. Okay. Australia is open. I mean, you, you can travel around all the other states. You can go from Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane to Adelaide to Tasmania or something. You just can't come like, Right, exactly. But you've got like 2,900 miles in the center with nobody in it. That is true. I saw a friend of mine... David Cake, uh, he posted a, a map someone had uh, put together of you know how many locations there are in Australia where it's more than a day travel to get to a city, mm-hmm. and like the entire centre of the country, right? And I mean, like yeah. a lot of it is more than a day away from a city in, in terms of tra- you know travel. So it's isolated out there and, and scary, and the, the rules have changed, right? Like when I was growing up, I was always told if you're in a car and you're driving through the outback and you, you're stranded, you can always drink, you always drain off the, the water in the radiator and drink that to help you survive. Be unpleasant, but it would be okay. Uh-huh. But now, of course, all cars have radiator fluid that is toxic in them. So you can't do that no more. Well, if you're foolish enough to drive across the outback, I mean, there, there must be, I mean, I, I see all these movies. What's the, oh, there was, there was one that was filmed somewhere in the middle of the outback at some station. What's the name of it? It's a famous movie. Um, There's a bunch, yeah. But uh, so there are obviously. Well, they did the Thornbirds was there. They did. Um, oh, There's a movie with Jenny Agutter and Michael York. Oh, which is, Walkabout. Uh, Walkabout, which was the same sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's so there's, a, there's a handful of them. Oh, Mad uh-huh. Max uses the same territory, but anyway, yeah. Right, but nevertheless, it still is. You still live in the most science fictional continent remaining. You could make an argument that Europe is the fantasy continent because so much formula fantasy is European. Now, gradually, Asia is catching up to Europe as the fantasy continent. America, North America, Canada, and the United States especially are the science fiction continent. Um, Maybe. What I think also, I think happily, happily, Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, you're right. I think parts of Asia are becoming more common Settings and also slowly parts of Africa are becoming more fan- mm. you know, common fantasy settings. For example, I think it's this very week that the third of Nedia Korafor's Akata books, mm. Akata Woman, comes out, and that's set in Africa. So there, there are more and more of that. Yeah, the, the spectrum is, is 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 shifting, though there is still a predominant sort of European European looking setting. Most famously, of course, um, just this week I saw that. Amazon gave us the name of their 
billion dollar J.R. Tolkien series, you know, mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings series was a ring of rings of power, I think. So it's going to be bonking around built making rings or something. So it's a jewelry show. Um, and that's all done in, was done in New Zealand, which is of course, you know, Europe when it's not being Europe. Yeah, of course. Um, there's a, a really a very powerful film uh, by Jane Campion called The Power of the Dog, which is probably I saw it. it's Benedict great. Cumberbatch's best performance. It's a, mm. And apparently it was shot in New Zealand pretending to be Montana. And yeah. it looks like nothing in Montana looks like that. I think uh, the funniest thing about The Power of the Dog is there's a scene in The Power of the Dog with ben, Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. that is almost identical to a scene in Spider-Man No Way Home with Benedict Cumberbatch. Really? I've not yep. seen Spider-Man. There is a scene in, well, okay, there is a scene in Spider-Man, and this is not genuinely not a spoiler, where uh, Peter Parker has come to see Doctor Strange to ask him to do something, mm-hmm. and Doctor Strange says to him basically, stop calling me sir, call me Stephen. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, okay, uh, Stephen. And then Doctor Strange goes, that just feels doesn't feel natural. Feels pretty awkward, and there's an almost identical scene in <laughs> Power of the Dog with Cumberbatch's character doing exactly the same thing. So trivia, Gary, it's all trivia. It, it, Speaking it, of trivia, longtime listeners of, of the podcast can probably check out now because we're about to touch on one of the oldest subjects in the history of the Coot Street Podcast. Yes, we are. Has anyone indexed the Coot Street Podcast? This is the worst thing we talk about. And it is that this is the awarding the awardingest time of the that once upon a time, and I'm gonna rush into it from this angle. Once upon a time, we were both told by our mutual friend Charles Brown that science fiction had an annual calendar. Mm-hmm. And that once you got to World Fantasy Convention in November and the World Fantasy Awards were presented, everybody got to go off and live their normal lives for a while and then go through the holiday season and then get on to ICFA as the beginning of the, the, the science fictional year for those who are insiders inside the science. Not this year, huh, Gary? Not at all. I mean, part of this is an exception. Part of this has to do with the fact that the Hugo nominating system went on for six months or something went out until December. And normally that would have been over months ago. So, so what it appeared to me and you, and I'm sure everybody else who is even involved in Hugo nominating, is that the Hugos are almost, they've been awarded three weeks earlier, and now you can, nomin- you can nominate for the new ones. So it seems like, okay, the Hugos are, for, and, and the, the thing that's going to confuse people is you don't have six months time, I don't think. You, you have a traditional deadline. If I'm, yes, I'm you do. Mistaken. Well, I mean, you're right, because Chicago, ShyCon 5, I think it is, ShyCon 5 is once again at a traditional time of the year for right. Worldcon. So it's like the first weekend of September, I think. And so they're back on the normal schedule, but they only presented the Hugos on like December the 19th. Right. And uh, it's mid-January when nominations open up. So it's like your head's spinning. It's like, how can I be nominating for the Hugos when you and I haven't even received our Hugos, Gary? That's true. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that, I mean, you could, you could make another argument that people should nominate. You could make a completely open season nominating rule. As soon as you read a book you like, nominate it for the Hugo. Nomin- if you don't nominate it for this year, nominate it for the 2027 Hugos. Uh, just, you know, I- I- immediate feedback kind of thing. That would just take the award season idea and throw it out the window and just to say, we're always giving some kind of an award. And if you don't get a Hugo, maybe you can get a Nebula or maybe you can get a World Fantasy Award or a World Horror Award or a BSFA Award or uh, whatever. Uh, the, the point is, do we have the question that we keep coming back to, which you warned us about, 
is do we have too many awards? And maybe I mean, let, awards, let, let me go ahead. Let me do a quick synopsis for you. Right? Today, where I am, where I'm sitting, I think is is January the twenty first or something. I think something mm-hmm. like that. Twenty third. So it's the twenty third day of January. So far, the WSFA Small Press Award has opened. The Sybil Awards have announced their finalists. The um, Philip K. Dick Award finalists were announced. The MWA Awards nominations were announced. These, those are the Edgars, which included a nomination to our friend Daryl Gregory. Daryl Gregory. Now Dr. Moreau. Big shout out to him, um, which is great. We've had the Walter Award winners. The uh, Hugo Award nominations opened uh, last beginning of the week. Uh, the Asimov Annual Readers Award, the Analog Annual Readers Awards open. Um, I saw that the Stoker preliminary ballot was announced. Um, I think the BSFA preliminary ballot has been announced. This is a long list, yes. And you're kind of going, but but it's only t- the 21st day of January. Exactly my point. It's uh, and it, it, it's not. And, and congratulations to all the people who are on all those long lists. But after. I mean, after a while, if I were a younger writer, let, by, by younger writer, let's say let's, I'm five years into my career. And at this point, I begin to get a little paranoid if I've never been nominated for anything. <laughs> well, actually, I think that I, it's, it's funny, I think, but I think you're also right. I think there's a feeling that if you don't get nominated for a major award, there's something amiss, something awry in your career, which I think is kind of crazy because there are great writers who have never won major and great works that didn't win major awards and strong works. Just, I mean, I mean, right now, and, and we've just completed, I'm we've just completed compiling the annual Locus recommended reading list, which is mm-hmm. the core Kickstarter for the Locus award. And that list will be announced on the 1st of February or the 2nd of February. But I'm looking at it, Gary, right? and I've been closely involved, as you have, for coming up with the final list. And what I see is that as we publish more and more work in more and more venues, and what happens is fewer individuals have read specific individual work. So I think that's great true. works drop by the wayside all the time because um, you literally just don't get enough support for them, which is really unfortunate, if a little inevitable. Well, I mean, when you look at the S Science Fiction Awards uh, database, you can, it's sometimes shocking at people who've never won or a few, some people who've never been nominated. Uh, but I think what's going on now with all the awards is, is, is two, two forces completely in opposition. One has to do with probably the founding of things like uh, the Hugo Award and the World Fantasy Award, and that is that science fiction and fantasy and horror writers weren't going to get nominated for traditional literary awards. They they weren't going to get on the Pulitzer or National Book Award circuit or on the bo- uh, Booker list. So the idea was to recognize excellence in the field because it wasn't being recognized anywhere else. In other words, the sure. impulse was somewhat elitist. Let us find the best of our field according to the best of our judgment. On the other hand, there's a sense that this is a field of level. It's, it, it, it's, it's leveling the playing field, genre fiction. It's an egalitarian movement. Everybody should have a chance. Everybody should be recognized. Everybody should have a niche. And to some extent, the, the elitist idea of an award with the democratized idea of, of, a, of a level playing field kind of come up against each other. On, on the one hand, it's like, yes, you're getting... Uh, you're, you're getting recognized with something like a Pulitzer Prize. And at the other extreme, it's like 
fourth grade t-ball or or middle school girls soccer where everybody comes home with a trophy a little bit not 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 completely but a little you right. by the way let me let me defend myself i have grand i went to middle school girls soccer games that's not a sexist thing what happens in boys t-ball in the united states in the suburbs is what happens with girls soccer it's a sexist okay. setup and i didn't make it that way <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even going near that. <laughs> I will say that. Even though I'm looking at the Locus recommended reading list, because I don't think it's changed, I'm not going to breach any of the confidence. You have to sit on the edge of your seats, listeners, uh-huh. until next, until sort of you know, a week and a half away when it gets released and you can see whether you know your work has made the list. You have to go to locusmag.com and, and see or buy the issue. It's packed full of you know stuff. But you know, it was it was a pretty good year in the end last year. I think it was a good year. But you made a point about when you were talking about how the list was put together, and without getting into any details, which are not secret anyway, it, it comes down to the same issue year after year. Somebody has to have seen these stories, and more than one yeah. person. There, there has to be validation. And when you get to some categories, uh, year after year, for example, this is not news. The nonfiction category, or the best related book category, in in, in the Locus Awards has always had a hard time getting, not getting nominations, but getting more than one or two people who've even seen the book. Yeah. And if a book doesn't get seen, it doesn't get nominated. I mean, this uh, comes up, uh, the other award I'm involved with, of course, is the Crawford Award, and we're trying to arrive at a decision about that now. And an issue becomes making sure that some of the books get in the hands of people who need to read them. A good example from a yeah. few years ago in terms of the Crawford was the first edition, the Malaysian edition of Zen Cho's Spirits Abroad, uh, yeah. which somehow we got copies of it for everybody and it won. <clears throat> and by the way, for anybody who's interested in Spirits Abroad, the small beer press edition has many more stories in it than... And it's beautiful. Book. It's a beautiful book. Um, As they but, are. But you can't give a book an award, you can't give a story an award if you can't see it or if you yeah. don't see it. And I don't think that and the people who are participating in the Locus Awards are much more conscientious about trying to read things they ought to read. I don't know whether the Locus voters on short fiction actually make an effort to read everything or if they read the half dozen things that they think they'll like or if they read the two or three things by friends of theirs. I don't know who reads what and how they get hold of it. My guess is, though, that a lot of really great stories never make ballots at all. Okay, I think a lot of gr- really good stories do do fail to make the ballots for a couple of reasons. Uh, in the, I will say that I will always hold, and we've talked about this before, I will always hold with the idea that you read what you can and you vote for what you love, and that's exactly. all you can ask for someone in those voting situations. But in terms of the recommended reading list, the short story category is an interesting beast in and of itself because there are more short story individual short stories stories under seven and a half thousand words published than anything else and i think this year we're going to end up recommending 70 or so short stories under seven and a half thousand words mm-hmm. now we have a voting panel for the short fiction awards of about 12 people mm-hmm. and these people have read pretty widely when you see the published list if you buy locus you will see who it's who it is, and I can tell you they they read and they read and they read. To, for a short story to make the, the 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 recommended reading list, the cutoff, the minimum number is five people who are on the panel have to have read it and voted for it. That's the minimum to get on, and that is the most for any category in the awards or in the, in the recommended reading list. Right. Um, your stuff needs to have been like so. If you've got you, you could have had a great story 
published in Dark Matter or Fantastic Americana mm-hmm. or wherever else. And maybe, maybe, you know, maybe only of our 12 people, four people read Speculative Los Angeles and only two people liked the story off it. Well, then it has very little chance of making the ballot. And it's unfortunate. But, you know, it's it, either... It, it, it's, yeah. it, it seems to me it's a, it's a difficult decision if you were a, a literary writer, for example. You're right. I mean, somebody publishes the rare science fiction story that shows up in the New Yorker or the more frequent science fiction and fantasy that shows up in a literary journal-like conjunction. It means you've got, maybe you've got a shot at getting a mainstream pushcart prize award, but you might not be visible to the people who are nominating for, for Hugo's or Nebula awards. I mean, it seems yeah. to me it's a choice of people. And, and, and you can't blame people for what has become an annual tradition uh, and it seems to me it's become an annual tradition within the last 10 years of the obligatory, here are my eligible works of the past year. And people have started doing that already because sure. the Hugo, people, I don't recall people doing it on January 1st uh, last year, but now well, the Hugo nomination. I, 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 I think you might be surprised if you, if you look back mm-hmm. um, in the internet era, at least, and over the last 10 years, Probably starting mid-December, you'll start to see eligibility posts. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how much more people push it beyond a, a single eligibility post, but around there. But you're right. Right now, particularly with the Hugos having, having opened up, suddenly a whole bunch of people have woken up and gone, well, I guess I better shout about the thing that I did, or maybe it won't get seen. You I know? think that's reasonable. I, 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 none of this, none of what I've seen on either Twitter or Facebook um, or TikTok, whenever I've looked at that, looks like a campaign. I don't see people saying, please, please vote for me. I see people reminding possible voters of things they've read because I'm like, partly because you and I work in a, on a monthly deadline with a magazine, yeah. we're probably more aware of timing than the uh, casual reader is. But the casual reader may have read a really good story by, I don't know, read a great story by uh, Sarah Pinsker. And I'd like to nominate it. And then you realize, well, I read that two years ago because yeah. it just sticks in your mind. So, so for a writer to say, look, this is the stuff I have this year is also a way of saying, you know, please don't nominate the novel I wrote five years ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, I, and also it means you always have to be diligent if you're running your award. I was looking at the BSFA long list mm-hmm. and a chunk of those things ain't eligible. Really? They're in the wrong really? categories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't there think are from, there are items that are on this year's Stoker list that are from last year's um, uh, Locust recommended reading list, and I'm like, ah. Well, for example, I think uh, right now the Mermaid Astronaut by Yoon Ha Lee, which is a terrific story that uh-huh. I really like. It's wonderful and absolutely worthy of any award it received. But I mean, it it was up for the Hugo last year, which means it's from 2020, but it's on the right. BSFA long list. Did something to do with when it appeared in Great Britain? I don't, I don't know. They're going to have to do a, a cleanup, I would imagine. But anyway, uh, to circle back to a bit of a question you asked, which is, or is implied in what you said, do I think we have too many awards? Mm-hmm. Um, and I struggle with this question when I bother to think about it, because mostly I don't think it's a critically important question. But... um. No, I think we've got enough to make people happy. I think it's fine, you know. Is that the point of the awards, to make people happy? What else would it be? It's a good point. Uh, I mean, it's... seriously, what, what is, I mean, you could say it's to recognize excellence, which would be a nice thing, but recognizing excellence is a very, very subjective thing at True. every angle. So there's that. 
you could say it's whatever. I mean, I've said over and over again, the best description I've heard of the Hugos is the one that was made by um, Kevin Stanley, where he described it to like like having a big community um, potluck and then voting mm. for your favorite cake that was brought to the potluck. And I think that's about right. A bunch of people voting for what they like best, and that's absolutely fine. And different people like different kinds of cakes, so cakes yeah. get different votes sure, sure. and so forth and, and so on. And I understand as well that Joe Walton did her long and interesting piece on Tor.com yeah. some years back going and looking at whether the Hugos got it right or got it wrong, and she felt overall they got it right. I'm sure they probably did. Well, but, she said they got it right more often than not, which is yeah. about as much as you can expect. I mean, they're... Well, but I mean, the qualitative angle is entirely subjective. It's just a matter of whose subjective opinion you're you're seeing. And as I'm sure many people who are, well, who are out there, who, who, who if they were asked, rather than necessarily who are listening, because that's only our discrete listenership, would say that also depends on whatever you're looking at. You know, the focus of the Hugos may be more diverse than it was, but it's still predominantly a white North American award. Um, the same is true mm. of all of them. All of the North American-based awards, they may be more diverse, but they're still predominantly that, and they're still looking at a particular thing. And so that's a thing you've got to at least be aware of when you sit there and go, you know, in, I mean, look like last year, right? Was Network Effect by Martha Wells the best science fiction, fantasy, or horror novel published in 2020? Now, I think it's a good novel. I think it's an entertaining novel. I think it's a perfectly worthy winner. Is it the most Hugo-ish kind of novel? Maybe, and that may be why it won. But is it the absolute best? I don't even know what you mean. There I don't so know. Many- I, I, and one of the things you have to think about is, is, is when these votes take place and what, they, uh, what, what the science fiction community is doing. Network Effect, the whole Murderbot series, would became enormously popular during the lockdown because they're not necessarily feel good, but they are uh, entertaining, humorous, sure. very humane, uh, very likable books, the kind of thing that... Yes, gives you some comfort during a bad time. People are not, uh, I, I, I don't know if people are going to vote for nuclear holocaust novels uh, during times that they're anxious about nuclear holocaust. They probably vote to, uh, for them during times when they're relatively, uh, relatively um, stable. The, the 50s, without looking at the Hugo Awards in the 50s or the, or the novels that are most remembered from the 50s, were all pretty much apocalyptic nuclear war novels because we were basically living, yes, with the fear of the bomb, but we were basically in most, uh, in North America, and I assume in, in Britain and Australia, well, fairly comfortable middle-class uh, life was being defined. So when things are comfortable, you go for apocalyptic novels, and when things are apocalyptic, you go for comfortable novels. Well, that's true. And also, it's, it is what you're reading for. I mean, our mutual friend and podcast yeah. guest, Ian Mond, plainly is reading for something different than our mutual friend and locus uh, collaborator, Russell Letson, uh-huh. right? Who's plainly looking for, for something different from our occasional guest and locus uh, colleague, Liz Burke, who's plainly looking for, you know, they're all going to pick something different. So I could turn around and say that in 2021, the best science fiction novel published was A Desolation Called Peace by Arcady Martin. But that doesn't mean that anybody else, well, anybody else is particularly going to agree. I think they will. I think it was. I, I, this is one of the things that bothers me about the idea of awards. And as long as people recognize the validity of what you just said, I have no problem with that. And, as, as, and by and large, uh, you're right. Joe Walton said that the Hugo Awards didn't embarrass itself. It, she didn't really say it got the best novel every year. She said 
It did all right. It did better than random would. But by and large, there is a sense that uh, that most of us know people outside the science fiction field. You know people in the real world. You have yes. you, know, you know people in the Australian government. I know people in academia here. We have family members. Most of the people you know outside of this field go through life without ever getting an award. Maybe, maybe you'll win a, a billfold in a raffle, as I did when I was in high school. Uh, or uh, maybe you'll get a Teacher of the Year award, which I did once out of decades of teaching. But it's as, almost as though in our field, some kind of an award, it becomes an expectation. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's like, I got published in this venue. Surely I will be up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, awards. So there's not much more to say other than to say, well, obviously, in, in our ongoing attempt, slows down, as some people have told me I should do in this podcast. Ah. In our ongoing attempt to manipulate the Hugo Awards, we trust that in your nominations you will bear the Crude Street podcast in your heart. That's about our attempt to log roll this, isn't it, Gary? Well, it's yeah, we should probably clarify that being nominated, not just once, but being nominated eight times is enormously gratifying and and surprising and touching and uh, intimidating in some ways. Appreciated. Wildly appreciated. So, and, and having the award is terrific, and it would be great to have more awards. I, I think the thing is, and we, we can speak from some experience with our mutual friend Charlie Brown, who had like, what, 25 Hugos or something like that. Whatever it was, yeah. Uh, you don't see anybody pointing to the 25 Pulitzer Prizes on their mantelpiece. It doesn't happen anywhere but here. No, no, it doesn't. And the truth is, as people were saying on social media in the days after December the 19th, you still have to explain to everybody outside the field what it is. Yeah, and it's, that, that, that's what puts us in our place. Um, yeah. I want a Hugo. Was that a although, good thing? Although, as I mentioned at our last uh, Roundup podcast, what, this is a big deal in the United States, at least, because there's now a champion for 34 days, a woman named Amy Schneider on Jeopardy. And last week, one of the categories on Jeopardy was the Hugo Awards. Now, that tells me that the Hugo Awards have become mainstream enough that a general information quiz show would think it's recognizable enough to be a category. I was actually kind of stunned at that because I've spent so many times trying to explain to people what to use. And, and to some so extent, does. it doesn't make much difference if you don't get recognized outside of field because if you have a Hugo Award or if you've been nominated for a Hugo Award, the next time you go to a convention or a conference or a meeting of whatever, uh, you go as a Hugo nominee. Yeah. One, nice. one of the pep talks that Mary Robinette Kowal gave all the nominees during the rehearsal for the Hugos this year, nobody can take away from you the fact that you've been nominated for a Hugo. And if nobody outside your immediate circle cares about that, it's still important in that circle. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, my own feeling about it, about being nominated for the Hugos, never mind, the genuinely unexpected, literally completely unexpected thing of winning one once, is that it shows that people are paying attention to your work and are interested in it and support it, which is very heartening. You know, um, I feel that for both the best editor Hugo's have been nominated for, and for the fan cast, it's 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 lovely that people think there's some merit in this and are willing to sit through what's now 33 minutes of posh about awards just because you know it's us. Well, I I think that people are willing to think about awards because thinking about awards forces you to think about the quality of what you're reading or what you're seeing or what you're listening to. Um, and that's never a bad thing. And in other words, when you 
when you get in the habit of reading, let's say, uh, oh, let's pick out something that's fairly universally recognized. Well, you get in the habit of reading The Wheel of Time, let's say. Not seeing it on television because we don't know what's happening there yet. Hmm. But And everything you read looks like The Wheel of Time. Then yeah. at some point, somebody asks you to nominate something for an award or somebody uh, shows you a list of nominees for an award. And you realize not all of these are Wheel of Time stories. There are some different stories. And then you think maybe I should look at those stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I think awards nominations, the process of looking at nominees for it, and it's done this to me. It's done this to me with short fiction and with novels and with nonfiction and occasionally with podcasts. I find something I never looked at before. And I thought, if enough people are looking at this, maybe I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. true, true, true. Oh, I don't know, Gary. So tell me, here we are, late January, 2022, 12, well, into our 13th year of podcasting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about the I mean, we had, we had our books we're looking forward to episode, right? And uh-huh. thank you again to everybody who's involved with that. Um, how are you feeling about the books that you're seeing and that you're waiting for? I'm getting a little excited about it. I mean, of course, some of the books we were looking forward to are books I've already read. And since we did that last uh, two weeks ago, I've read a couple of more books that are on the uh, books we're looking forward to listening. It looks to me like it's a very promising year coming up. Uh, I think it looks great. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've got, well, we, we don't want to repeat what we've said before. No. But the health of the field, uh, whether it's been helped or, or hindered by, by the lockdown, by people spending time at home and that sort of thing, it just seems to me that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on and well, we, we we don't know whether it has to do with people doing more writing because they're locked down i don't I know whether that's the nature of the base I, th- I think it's the nature of the field so that you know uh, i noticed for example that the title of the book escapes me sophia samatar has a new book coming out this year a new novel mm-hmm. and sophia samatar is a wonderful writer so it's bound to be interesting and worth reading um it comes out in the back half of the year i think uh, I also was looking, I, I see that they've just dropped um, the a, the advanced reader copies of The doctor, the Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which is the new Sylvia Moreno well, that'll series be that's coming out yeah. in July. Um, very excited about that. Um, amongst an endless batch. And the, the, in fact, the only reason I'm not going to talk about the book I'm reading right now is because I have this funny feeling I'm not supposed to admit I have it. Uh-huh. And I think I so, know what it is. I bet you don't. Oh, really? I will bet you, I will bet you don't know what it it's, is. It's not by a mutual friend of ours, then? No, it's not. Oh, okay. No, it's not. I, I know the book that you are alluding to, uh, Mr. Wolf. You would be alluding to All the Seas of the World by Guy Gavriel Kay. Uh-huh. No, that is not the book that I am reading. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. I am reading another book, and I have, I must say, just fallen into it. I'm about a third of the way through it and enjoying it very much. I am probably, I'm trying to decide whether I'm happy or not that I'm reading it digitally, which is the only way I could get it, but I'm reading it digitally, which means that I'm 28% through it, but I think I noticed that it's like a 700-page book, which I suddenly find kind of terrifying. Oh, dear. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I I dislike about digital books is the notion that um, you have no idea really where you are in the book. And... 17%, 28% 17%, 28% doesn't tell me whether I'm on page 200 of a 500. If I want to do the math, I could probably figure it out. Yeah, but yeah. I, because I just did the same thing. I had, I had This past week, I read a book which is coming out in March, um, yeah. which I just sank right into because it's, it's, it's written in a, in, with a bestseller efficiency. Let me put it that way. 
Uh, which and is I, good. And that, which, which, which is a good thing. And, and you read, read through it, and it's enormous amounts of fun. And there are things that don't work with it that if it were – and I, I don't want to put it – I'm not going to mention the title, so I can put it this way. If it were a better novel, it wouldn't be as much fun to read. Yeah. And there are a lot uh, of things. Uh, but, right, right. There, there are uh, writers who are just very good at efficient storytelling, and, and you fall into a book. There are books – there are different ways of falling into a book. There's a falling into a book, as I did this week, which is a little bit like plunging off a diving board, which I should explain I have never in my life done nor intended. But you're off and you're in the water and that's it. Uh, there's plunging into a book like possibly your 700-page book where I want to wallow in this for a while. I want to be mm. in this world. I want to find out what more. I don't want this book to end anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, actually, I'm, I, I will sort of cheat about because, eh, why not? It's our podcast, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk up something that I've worked on that is not my own work. I have I have purchased and um, uh, well, I've helped acquire and I've edited a bunch of novellas for Tor.com that will come out uh. during the year ahead, right? Uh, I think four or five of them are coming out in the first half of the year. The first one is Kundo Wakes Up by Saad Zed Hussain. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you've already read this. I've read that. I've reviewed it. You should have my review. Yeah. And I mean, I've got to say, I love it. And I wish, wish, wish that I was working on another book with Saad right now. Um, for those who haven't read The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, I would say go read it right away. It's fun. It's engaging. It's set in a near future world where there's climate collapse. There's whatever else. But mm. it's fun. Um Probably it would be fair to say that Kundo Wakes Up is a somewhat more serious feeling book in some ways than um, Gurkha. It's a more plotted book. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all about uh, our, you know, video gaming and RPGs. It's set in Chittagong in Bangladesh, which I thought was fascinating as a setting. It's set, set in this sort of world where this guy is trying to find, well, what, he's obsessed with his ex-wife, and he thinks the narrator, the not the author. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. The, the Kundo, the, the, not the narrator. He's not the narrator, the actually. Though, is he? Kundo, yeah. the former, who was, was a formerly famous artist, living in a increasingly rundown part of Bangladesh that is at risk of sea, sea rise, is obsessed with his ex-wife, who's gone missing, and it is the unlikely group of people he gets together to go in search of her mm. and what happens when he finally gets it. And, and, and I thought it was absolutely delightful when I read it. And I, I think, I mean, it's all, it's not quite a short novel, but it's within that kind of space. And I hope people will go out and seek it because I think it's great. We should mention that people who might have read, uh, if not the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, then Cyber Mage, because one of my favorite, <clears throat> One of my favorite characters from from all of Hossein's novels, um, since we were talking about favorite characters a few weeks ago, is yeah. shows up in both um, Cyber Mage and Kundu Wakes Up, and that's a punk, brilliant young punk sort of gamer programmer who calls herself K-pop retro girl, and she sh she's a great character in Cyber Mage. She's one of the major characters there, which is almost a young adult novel, and she shows up again in this in a much more empowered role, let's say. Yep. But he's, he's, he's a very funny writer. And that's one of the things that I want. He is a very funny writer. And one of the things that uh, we may have talked about before is how difficult it is to do humor in fantasy or science fiction. And his it's, it's, novels have both fantasy and science fiction. I mean, 
it's hard to do it well. It's hard to market it. It's hard to attach it to an audience in a reliable mm-hmm. way. Uh, particularly, if, you know, I just had a, a a pitch that I won't go into from a writer that I won't name that I couldn't place with a publisher because they weren't confident that they could find a market for that humorous work, even though I loved the idea. And if it was simply my choice, I would be out there working on it right now. Okay. The next book I, I'm going to talk about, Novella, which, mm-hmm. tour, which is coming out, I think, in March or April, is from Christopher Rowe. Uh-huh. Now, Christopher Rowe, for those of you who don't know, is a wonderful writer from Kentucky, a very distinctive regional voice, writes science fiction and fantasy, written some fantastic short stories for me and other people, hasn't had his own, well, a novel under his own of his own devising under his own name. He's written mm. some a gaming novel, but he's written a novella called These Prisoning Hills, mm. right, which is coming out in a few months. And These Prisoning Hills is a standalone t- tale set in his voluntary state of Tennessee. Now, it it is related to and follows on from two preceding works, The Voluntary State and its, fo- its follow-up. So it can be seen as a third and final book in that arc but completely stands alone. And it's just a fascinating, wonderful story told in Christopher's you know, fantastic writing style. Which reminds me of his collection of short stories called Mapping the... Oh, now, you, now you're being unfair. I do know it. I do know it because it's not mapping, it's something else. And Christopher's Map- going to be really understandably annoyed now. Well, no, there's a, there's a story called Another Map is... Another word for map is faith, which I think is a terrific story. I was thinking about maps lately. Um, You're telling the map. Telling the, the map. Telling the map. It's a small beer collection, as I recall. It's four or five years old and features a whole bunch of great stories. And it was, I think, the place where originally the sequel to the voluntary state, the border state, appeared. The border state, yes. Uh, yeah, because the so there's the three of them. There's the voluntary state, the border state, and now these prisoning hills, which I oh, cannot say. Things- uh, the, the, the reason I the reason I mention that is that I'm looking forward to seeing his novella for for Tor. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing new fiction by him because there isn't that much. It's not he's not exactly that prolific. But no. when we mention new things and we send people, I, we hear about this on the podcast. People say I've got uh, I've got to add things I've added to my reading list because you've mentioned them. I think we should make a point of mentioning things that are out four or five years ago, like telling the map, because a lot of yeah. these short story collections uh, kind of go under the radar, especially yeah. short story collections, I suppose. Yeah. And then you find you discover a writer and then you find out that, well, okay, there is a collection of Sophia Samatar stories, for example, that I could look at. There are... Very uh, good ones. So, so uh, I think, I don't know, I think we should start recommending books that are a few years old that might have just gone under the radar, and we could probably do a whole episode on that. We probably could. The two others I'll mention, I won't take too long, I hope, with it. Um... January the fifteenth. January fifteenth is a new novella by Rachel Swirsky that's coming in the first half of the year. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You can pre-order it now. If I remember, I'll put links in. It is a universal basic income story set uh, on the day that the U- that the UBI payment comes out. So uh-huh. It's a single day in the life of modern day America, told from the perspective of four, I think it is, different people in different situations: a journalist. Uh, a, a, a woman who belongs to a Mormon-type religious group, uh, a, a woman who's hiding from an abusive partner, and, and some young, uh, very, very wealthy uh, ke- you know, teenagers who are uh, trying to work out what they'll do with their, uh-huh. their money on UBI day. Beautifully written, really engaging. 
uh, fantastic snapshot kind of a thing. A gr- I mean, Rachel's really a terrific writer, and she, it's a pity that there hasn't been a, a novel for uh, readers to grab onto. Uh, but this, which is one of her few book publications, really is a fantastic thing. I'm looking forward to that as well. One of the things that that makes me think of is um, an, another kind of theme that you're beginning to see show up more in science fiction. It's a very difficult theme to handle science fiction. That is anything to do with economics or productivity mm. or, or the kinds of things that Marxist critics like to focus on. But um, there have been a lot of, for example, post-scarcity stories. There have been a, a lot of massive depression, the societies collapse kind of stories. But something like that, where you've got an actual issue that people are talking about uh, in various cultures, it's, it seems to be something that science fiction only tentatively deals with. And Rachel has always been kind of a courageous writer. She always takes on interesting topics. This sounds it's fascinating. It's one of the ones I can't look forward to. I can really look forward When it first showed up, uh, I wasn't really sure. And Rachel and I, I mean, I don't think people really know how the back end of working in Tor.com happens, and I understand why that is. Mm. It's just not public stuff. But they're a very f- surprisingly flexible group of people, and Rachel originally had had suggested we had worked together on one story, and that didn't quite work another, and then we got to this one. And I wasn't sure when it first arrived what it was going to be like or whether I would, frankly, even like it. But it's great. It's great. The other I think, one... I think- I think one of the other things you mentioned, speaking about the back end of, uh, of, 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 the, of the business, I suppose, is that writers who are successful writers we admire a lot sometimes don't actually get everything accepted that they send out. One of the most, uh, one, one of the most encouraging things, I think, for younger writers, and I'm sure she's doing this for younger writers, is on Facebook, uh, Jane Yolen will post, when she gets a rejection in the mail, she'll, she'll post, I got, okay, she writes a lot. So she'll post, I got two acceptances and one. But she wants people to know, she wants younger writers to know that even Jane Yolen, with like at least 300 books, maybe 400 by now, that she still gets rejections and she still knows how to deal with them. So not everything your favorite writer writes makes it into print or certainly doesn't necessarily make it into print in the form that they originally thought it would. The other book I'd mention is one that was on your books to look forward to list, mm-hmm. Gary. Uh, and that is the second of the Zinnia Gray stories, A Mirror Mended by Alex E. Harrow, mm-hmm. which is a, a book that was acquired, well, after she tweeted about something, to be really honest. <laughs> and I, 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 I mean, it, it's, it's the, the follow-on to a spindle splintered. And if anything, I like it more than sp- spindle. Wow. And I like spindle a whole lot. Um, it's one of those things where I don't really want to go into the detail of the story very much because I think it kind of, uh, removes the pleasure for the for the you know the reader who's looking forward to it already. But Alexi Harrow, I mean, it's such a great talent. Uh, the books she's she's put out in the world are wonderful. I can't wait to see what she does next. Um, and Mirror Mirror is great. She also wrote a terrific story for me for an anthology that I've got coming out later this year called Someone in Time. That's the anthology, mm-hmm. not the story. Uh, so just doing great great work. The other thing in terms of books to look forward to, we didn't talk about last week. Um, is I have become a great and passionate fan of Kelly Barnhill's. Mm-hmm. Now, K- Kelly Barnhill won the World Fantasy Award and won, I think it was the Newbery Medal for her novel, The Girl Who Drank the Moon. She won the Newbery for that, yes. And she has three books now coming out. Now, I know there was a point this year. I know there was a little window where it looked like maybe she wouldn't keep writing at all, but she has a middle-grade book coming out called The Ogress and the Orphans, which looks, looks great. 
She has a fantastic looking adult book called When Women Were Dragons, which maybe we'll get her on the podcast to talk about, Gary. I started reading good. it last night, in fact. You have it? Yes, I have it. Fuck, I hate you. I'm sorry. I like that out. <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the, this is the first time that we're going to get kicked off iTunes. Um, Can you just hold that up to hold it up page by page? No, I don't have a copy. Of it. I have an e-copy of it. I have a Kindle copy of. Um, oh, I get emails. I, okay, this is this is this is the secret to getting books, Jonathan, the editor who has five times as many. New, no, I, I got an email from from the editor uh, at William Morrow, I believe, uh, and maybe <laughs> and. The, she said, click this link, and the link took me to Kendall and said, you've been a pre-approved for this, so I clicked on it, and I started reading it. And it's it's really, it's kind of, it's a novel which is based on a premise that you think can't possibly work, which is what makes it fascinating. I mean, basically, the premise, which I think is in the advance publicity for the novel, is that sometime in the mid-1950s, hundreds of thousands of American women turned into dragons. <laughs> As they do. As it's, it's, the idea of setting it in 1950s America is fascinating by itself, and they call this Dragoning Day, and everybody remembers it. And th- as far as I know so far, it's a young girl who's witnessed her next-door neighbor turning into a dragon, but the big Dragoning Day hasn't happened yet. I don't know where it's going to go. Uh, it's such an audacious idea that I would, if I didn't, have a lot of confidence in Barnhill from having read some of her short fiction. I would think this can't possibly work. Now I'm thinking, I can't imagine how it's going to work, but it probably will. It probably will. I, I will say, because I personally can't resist doing this, that is a story that was supposed to be a story for the Book of Dragons. Hmm. And that, and as, as you can tell, it got out of control and was not in the Book of Dragons. Um. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? I mean, if you if you have people write, this is, can't be the first time this has happened. Uh, no, of course not. I mean, you only have to look at oh, what was that book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Yeah, that's a that's a renegade from my my previous witch's book uh, under my hat. Letty Hempstock's Ocean, I think it was called. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, you, you admittedly, you may not have gotten. Uh, a major name for an anthology, but if you've helped to birth a story that becomes a classic, you know, in which in many people's estimation, possibly my own, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, maybe Neil Gaiman's best novel. Yeah, oh, no, no. I think what Neil did was exactly the right thing, and I will always, even when it's disadvantageous to me, think that the author has to do what they can. And, I mean, in Kelly's case, she wrote a different story for me, which was great. Uh, um but, and Neil did too, I have to say, sorry. But, um, yeah, that's that time. The other thing that she has coming out is a piece called The Crane Husband. Hmm. Now, The Crane Husband by Kelly Barnhill will come out from Tor.com in the second half of the year and was edited and acquired by somebody, I don't know who. Yeah. I, hope, I hope this isn't a novel about the mid-1950s American husbands turning into cranes. No, I can assure okay. you it's not that. I can assure you it's not that. All right, fine. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, so look, that was kind of me turning it into like, well, this is all about me. But those are books that I'm looking forward to seeing get out into the world. You know, now, of course, I'm also actually, I was going to say, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding a way where I can extract an, a, an advanced review copy of the Kelly Barnhill novel from someone. But I have to admit, I already have enough books from 2022 sitting on my Kindle that I don't know how I'm going to find time to read them. Well, and I'll mention one that I didn't mention last week because I, I'd, I'd read it. I, it's coming out, I think, in April. 
But it's one of those writers that we should talk about because so many writers love this guy, and that's Daniel Pinkwater, who is now working with Tachyon, as a lot of good writers are, uh, and is a novel coming out called Crazy in Poughkeepsie. Not my favorite title, but it's kind of a sequel to last year's Adventures of a Dwarvish Girl. Yeah, and yeah. apparently Cory Doctorow has talked about this already on, on Boing Boing at length, and he loves it. And people that you like, like this guy. It's one of the things I think is always a, a, a feeling of, of self-satisfaction, I guess, when you find out that you think you've discovered this writer, and then you find out that, wait a minute, Cory Doctorow has discovered this guy. I mean, Neil Gaiman is a fan of him, and Charlie Anders, all maybe for different reasons. When you've got that many different writers looking at the same guy, and some of these writers yeah. are young enough to have actually discovered Pinkwater when they were kids, uh, you think, okay, this guy is one of the unsung heroes of the outsider uh, in, yeah. in literature. All of his characters are bizarre outside characters. Um, his young adult novel, uh, which is a parody of young adult novels, has one of the funniest opening chapters, chapters of any a book I've read. But Crazy in Poughkeepsie basically deals with whale heaven, among other things, which is okay. something I hadn't really thought much about. There you go. Lots and lots of books, Gary. Lots well, of awards, lots of books. Awards of 2022 awards. still to go. Right, and we haven't even seen whatever TV and movie things come out this year. I mean, basically, the Wheel of Time is done, I guess, for a season. Uh, I guess. I, I watched all of the first part of it, and I, I, I don't know. How was it, Gary, just quickly, because I don't think no, no, I'm going to watch it. Um, I liked, oh, first of all, I did not finish the first novel, and I tried to read, okay, I tried several times to read the Wheel of Time. I, was, I, I had problems with the prose. Let me put it this way. The problems with the prose are no longer there. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it was, it, it was engaging. The, 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 the actors, the performers are skilled. The sets are terrific. I think it looks great. Um, I think it seemed to make sense. I, I was able to make sense of the plot. Um, which I gather from talking to my partner Dale was somewhat oversimplified from the actual books, but nevertheless coherent enough. Sure enough. So I'm, I'd, I'd look at I'd look at it again. I, I do not consider myself a snob because it's based on a book that I didn't care for. I'm not looking forward, for example, to the whatever happens with the Lord of the Rings uh, prequel, which is apparently maybe based on a couple of random phrases from the Silmarillion. But otherwise, completely made up. I suspect. I think it's all about. I could be completely wrong. I'm probably completely wrong. Um, about the forging of the One Ring. Uh, the, back in the second, the second age, or is it the third age? The first oh, age. I don't something know. like that. Something like that. Uh, but by and large, it's apparently somebody forging a narrative out of what in the Silmarillion is not a dramatic narrative. It's a history. I will say I am amused slash bemused with the idea that. I mean, my understanding is that with the uh, Lord of the Rings TV show, it's been pre-approved to the first five seasons, greenlit for five seasons. Well, they're planning on spending half, get their money out half of a billion dollars on it. Um, I mean, all I want is somebody to make a, smart, a, a, a cute, low-budget film out of, I don't know, Bill the Galactic Hero. Or, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, look, you're going to get another Game of Thrones TV show pretty soon. I know. Um, I am looking forward to Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. I saw, I thought the teaser for that was good, so that that might the be. The Sandman good. should be good. I think that maybe a series, the series based on Kindred, shows promise. Yeah, Octavia yeah, yeah. Butler's Kindred. Absolutely. So there, there, 
I mean, the, the fact is that if if the by by Hollywood, I mean Hollywood, Britain, uh, all the places that you make movies now, Netflix and so forth. The fact is, they are beginning to discover some books. They're, the problem is, if they discover one book, they'll go on and and mine that to the point of meaningless. But you know, Butler deserves the attention. Certainly, Neil Gaiman deserves the attention. Neil knows his way around TV production, oh. which helps matters because he's not going to get taken in. I don't. Think. Uh, and but by and large, yeah. For whatever people think about the failings of things like Foundation or even. Uh, people who didn't like the the new Dune movie. There's a sense that filmmakers are beginning to look at literature again. And for a long time, all the science fiction and fantasy we saw were things that were spinoffs of, of of Star Wars and, uh, uh, and 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 you know fantasy franchises. So yeah, it's I, I don't think it's a healthy sign for people to try to invent Tolkien stories that he didn't write. But I do think it's a good idea for somebody to be at least reading uh, Kindred or reading The Sandman. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know what else is coming up this year, but I'm sure there are some good Lots ones. Anyway, 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 we're now past waffling into double waffling or whatever you okay, want to call okay, okay. it. Well, let's, let's let's stop now, and we'll we'll just wait. Uh, we'll wait until we think of something else to say before we podcast again. Promise. <laughs> well, <laughs> best we can offer for you, folks. Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, and all those. No, no I'm not going to get into that. Um, no. This dear, listeners. Uh, dear listeners, to all of our listeners, thank you. This has been the Cood Street Podcast.